This morning we have the great opportunity to continue in our series in Matthew, taking a look at Matthew 16 today, and we have the opportunity this morning to reflect on the significance of strong foundations, the significance of strong foundations. One of our favorite areas in Boston to visit, kind of walk through on a day maybe prettier than this one, is the area of Back Bay. Perhaps you've been, kind of walk through that area of town just west of downtown, between downtown and Fenway, a site filled with uh, shops. It's got restaurants and beautiful homes that you're able to walk through, kind of a nice walking area through the Back Bay. Back Bay is also the area where most visitors to our city would walk into and they would say something to the effect of, when I think of Boston... This is kind of what I imagine. This looks like Boston to me, to which I frequently respond, wait until you see my neighborhood in Medford. It's going to blow your mind, right? And so we have, we have this kind of comparison factor, but we love going to Back Bay. But the thing about Back Bay is that there is a lot more than meets the eye. Unbeknownst to many, walking through the Back Bay area on a given day is that the Back Bay area is not built effectively on solid ground. So much of our city over time has been built up on what's called made land, man-made land. The peninsula of Boston wasn't big enough for the Puritan settlers' plans, and so over time they began building this man-made land, importing literal tons of sand, gravel, other pieces of material to build up our city. Because the foundations were a bit loose still, settlers and those thereafter drove gigantic wooden stakes down through the materials that they imported. So Back Bay, portions of South Boston, the airport, all of this is built on man-made land, supported in part by these wooden posts. Now the whole system works, or falters, on the level of groundwater in our city. As long as these huge wooden posts are submerged beneath the groundwater in Boston, everything's fine. They can support the weight of what they hold. In a drought season, however, when the groundwater level sinks... The wood becomes exposed and is threatened by rot. And so even just this September, we come through a mild drought season and a few news headlines probably sneak underneath your purview. But the people in the news, the headlines are reading, if this drought continues, we're going to have big trouble in Back Bay. The wood will begin to rot, will expose the foundation. To address the problem, and you're not super interested in this, but I thought it was worth sharing with you to address the problem commission centered around monitoring the level of groundwater. That's right. The Boston Groundwater Trust is a thing here. And you can find it. Search the state of Massachusetts website and do the nerdy digging by I've done most need. The Boston Groundwater Trust has been created to ensure that our city's foundations stay strong. A whole trust, a whole committee, people giving their time to ensuring that our city's foundations are strong. Foundations are important. Good foundations, even more so, as it is with buildings and structures and cities, so it is with people and institutions. Strong foundations are significant. And for communities of faith like this one, strong foundations are non-negotiable. And so we'll see in our text today that we as believers can live joyfully and confidently as our lives are built on a strong foundation of a confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. We can live joyfully and confidently as our lives are built on the strong foundation of a confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the son 
of the living God. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me. I want you to have a copy of the text in front of you so you can see where some of our ideas are coming from in the sermon today. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there's one available to you underneath the seat in front of you. You're welcome to use that. And if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a table in the back, has free Bibles there, and you can feel free to pick one up on your way out this morning. If you're brand new to to reading the Bible and turning to the book of Matthew, you'll find that the larger numbers there are chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are verses. And we'll be in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Read along silently as I read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So we see in our passage here sort of two portions, two halves of the passage. First, we see the content of a confession. The content of a confession. Who makes the confession and what the confession consists of. What's actually being said in the confession. Second, in addition to the content of the confession, we see a context for it. We see where the confession lives and breathes. We see where it's made and affirmed, where it's nurtured and where it's strengthened. And Jesus is painting this picture for his disciples and subsequently for us so that we know what the confession is and how the confession plays out in our daily lives. Jesus is issuing this to his disciples in two questions at the beginning of our passage today. He's come into this region, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is filled with Gentile Gentile people, people who have no concept or no really inclination to hear Jesus out on the things that he's saying. In addition, the region of Caesarea Philippi is filled with pagan influence. In fact, they're worshiping other gods. And this is the context, the backdrop, in which Jesus is now going to begin teaching more explicitly concerning his true identity. So Jesus pushes to his disciples these two questions. Who do people out there say that I am? Who are people on the street saying I am. What are they saying about me? The second question he asks concerns them more directly to his closest followers. He says, okay, we know what they're out there, what they're saying about me. Now, who do you say that I am? Jesus, in this context, is sort of putting his ear to the ground, getting a concept of what people are saying about him, getting a feel for what his reputation is in this context. He's putting his thumb on the pulse of what people are saying about who he really is. Years ago, for the better part of my 20s, better part of a decade, I spent my time in ministry context in family ministry settings, 
kind of let out in children's ministry and student ministry settings, which had its charms and its difficulties. And oftentimes I would find myself in sort of a preschool, early elementary classroom, filling in for a teacher. And in that context, we would often set the pace for the day's activities or Bible story through an icebreaker game. And we often played one called telephone, right? And so the goal of telephone, you may have heard it called differently, is simple. You have a message giver who whispers to the person next to them a simple message, and the message is meant to go from person to person whispering around the circle. And then it arrives back at the message sender in great hopes that it will be the exact same message that went out in the first place. Now what you learn about the game of telephone rather quickly is that the younger the age of participants, the wilder the game can get. Right? And so you whisper, I'm in a preschool setting, a pre-K, maybe kindergarten setting, and I lean over to the boy or girl next to me and I kind of give them a softball phrase, right? Jesus loves us. They'll nail that one. And so they lean over to the place and we learn that whispering is an acquired skill. And so they loudly whisper to the person next to them, Jesus loves us, right? And so you have great confidence that everything's going to go well. But over time, the message kind of gets quieter. You can't hear what's going on and then it happens. Little Johnny back there is supposed to tell little Susie that Jesus loves us, but he's taking entirely too long to do it. You're like, there's no way it takes a minute and a half for Johnny to tell Susie that Jesus loves us. The next person takes longer to tell the next person, the next person, the next person, and then it finally gets back to the message giver, and the child leans over and breathing kind of heavily as they do, puts their hand on the wrong side of their mouth to tell you a secret and whispers, my mom made blueberry pancakes and they were good, right? And so we begin praying that God in his sovereignty and great kindness would make the message that Jesus loves us as good or better than mom's blueberry pancakes, right? But the message gets so easily lost in translation. The message is lost in translation. And this is doubly true of what's going on with Jesus. He's performed great miracles. He's taught authoritatively. He's made it clear who he is over and over and over again. And now he wants to know, has that message been received? Has the message been received? And so he turns to his disciples in verse 13, and he says, who do people say that I am, the son of man is, this title that he refers to himself by? The disciples, racking their brain for things that they've heard, probably in their everyday lives, kind of going throughout, give a couple of examples that they've heard. Some say, Jesus, that you are John the Baptist. They have this concept of John the Baptist, possibly risen from the dead, and we've seen earlier in the book of Matthew that Herod was among this group. Others have heard that Jesus, perhaps, is Elijah. And so they have this context of a prophecy given in Malachi chapter 4 that Jesus may come in the form of, of Elijah, that he may be Elijah fulfilling this prophecy. Others think that Jesus may be Jeremiah or one of the prophets. No real good reason for why they might think that other than to think that maybe his teaching is similar. He teaches with authority as one of the prophets did, and so maybe he's one of the prophets now. Come back into this context. And what we glean from this is that everyone, everyone, is a confessor when it comes to Jesus. That everyone has a confession as it concerns to the person of Jesus Christ. Ask 10 people on the street, ask 10 people in this room this morning, and everyone has a thought about this man, which is telling. Now the thought could land on any sort of a point along the spectrum, right? 
Some people readily accept the claims of Jesus, would say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who has come to save us from our sins. He's my Lord and Savior. I consult him daily, directs my life. I accept these things. Others reject him outright. I know all of the claims. I've considered the evidence. I see how things are being put together for others, but I willingly do not believe that that is true. Some people are asking good questions. Some people are inquiring further about this man. I've heard somewhat what Jesus is about. I've heard about his love and his mercy. I've heard that he demonstrates this, and I'm trying to figure out exactly who he is, exactly what he's about. They're inquisitive. And still others are indifferent. I know all the claims. I know it's good for some people. I know people gather in that building on a Sunday morning. I just don't really care. It doesn't apply to my life. Don't have much to do with it. It doesn't have much to do with me. I'm indifferent. All across the spectrum, whether acceptance, rejection, inquiry, or indifference, everyone has a confession as it relates to Jesus. As believing people, as people on the acceptance end of that spectrum, it ought not be weird for us to be the most curious people when it comes to others' belief about who Jesus is. It ought not be weird for us to be curious about what others think about Jesus. It shouldn't be strange for us to ask the question. Everyone is a confessor. Everyone thinks something about Jesus. So Jesus has a category for this. People out there are talking about who he is. And likewise with us, people out there are talking about who he is. But the more pressing question for both Peter, the disciples, and us is this question. Not what do people out there say about Jesus, but what do you say? Who do you say that Jesus is? So Jesus turns to his disciples, and we see this in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? We see even change in emphasis in in Matthew's writing here. Now, who do you say that I am? A monumental question for Peter's life, for the life of the disciples, and down the line for our lives as well. Who do you say that Jesus is? Simon Peter replies in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's on the table for the disciples and it's on the table for us today. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Is the Jesus at the center of your confession when you're still asking good questions about? Is the Jesus at the center of your confession when you're still trying to navigate his work and his words and his ways, still trying to assess whether or not what he's saying is actually true? Is the Jesus at the center of your confession when you've determined you'll have nothing to do with? Jesus at the center of your confession, one you've done away with completely? Is the Jesus at the center of your confession, one of your own making? Wherein all the wisdom gathered, you've pulled the best parts of what we believe is true about Jesus and sort of fashioned him into a God for yourself. I like Jesus' teaching. I find that he's kind and generous toward others. I'm going to take the best parts of Jesus and kind of fashion a Jesus for myself? Or is the Jesus at the heart and center of your confession the one that Peter proclaims in his? 
Is the Jesus at the heart of your confession, the Jesus who came to save people from their sins, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God? Who is Jesus to you? Peter answers here and gives this stunning confession. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And when Peter answers, for those who have been following along, it's kind of like a big sigh of relief for us. We really want Peter to get a win here, right? Last time we saw Peter, he's being pulled up by the neck of his rope into a boat, and Jesus is sort of chiding him there on the basis of his expressed doubt, his little faith, and his increased doubt, right? We really want Peter to be the one who answers, And Peter obliges, and he leaps to answer, and thank the Lord that he answers well. Peter gives a stunning confession. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And as we see Jesus' response, we realize that though Peter's significant in the scheme of things, Peter's significant in the story, that the content of his confession is what thrills the heart of Jesus. That the content of his confession is what thrills the heart of Jesus. In confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, what is Peter saying? What are the implications of this confession? There are many, but I'll give you three this morning. The implications of this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, number one, if Jesus is the son of God, and we think that he is, then his death on the cross counted. His death on the cross counted for the forgiveness of sins. Only the true son of God could stand in that place on behalf of us, on behalf of our sin, and take on God's wrath and punishment for us. If Jesus is the son of God, then his death on the cross counted. An implication of this confession. And not only did his death on the cross count, but if Jesus is the son, the resurrection actually happened. All of these events are predicated upon the fact that Jesus truly is the son of God. So what does that mean? It means that death is no longer a stop sign. That the grave is no longer a final destination. We now are welcomed into new life forever with Jesus. If the resurrection happened. And the third thing, the third implication that we see of this confession is that if Jesus is the son of God, and we think that he is, then his return is imminent. He is coming back. And for us, that means that our pain has a shelf life. It means that suffering and weakness have, a, have an expiration date. It means that there will be a day when Jesus returns and gathers to himself those whom he loves They will celebrate in glory forever and worshiping with him. If Jesus is the son of God, then his death counted. The resurrection happened and he's coming again. This is a monumental confession that Peter makes. We begin to ask the question, how does Peter know? Well, he's seen Jesus at work. He's witnessed his miracles. He's heard his teaching. He's been along for the ride. Jesus pulled him into the boat. It seems reasonable that, Jesus, or that Peter would proclaim Jesus as the one who saves because he has physically been saved by him. And yet, Jesus instructs us and tells us that that is not the root or the source of Peter's knowledge. Look with me at verse 17. 
Jesus answers Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven. My Father, who is in heaven. Jesus says that Peter's knowledge here is not the result of human cunning or wisdom or being smart. Peter's knowledge here in his confession is not the result of his ability to put all the pieces together to make earthly sense of who Jesus is. Jesus teaches that Peter's confession is the result of knowledge gleaned from heaven. It's heavenly wisdom given to him by the Father who is in heaven. While you and I are often tempted to think of heaven and earth as different realities and different realms, there are ways in which, and Jonathan Lehman, a pastor and scholar, has done a good job of kind of painting the picture of this. There are instances and scenarios and contexts in which the things of heaven and the things of earth collide. They come together. They're lived out. And Jesus begins painting a picture of one of these contexts, one of these realities. Your knowledge about who Jesus is, is given from heaven. Your earthly life is changed by heavenly good news. This is the context in which the confession is given and received. That induces If I'm utterly convinced at the end of the day that my belief in Jesus Christ, that the faith I have in Jesus Christ is given me as a gift, then there is no scenario in which I'm tempted to believe that I'm better than anyone else, particularly those who don't believe. And so if I think my knowledge and my wealth of knowledge that I have about Jesus and my faith in Christ makes me better than someone else, Jesus is dispelling that notion. The gift, the faith you have is a gift given by God. If I believe that faith is a gift given me by God, then I don't look down my nose at an unbelieving person. I put my nose to the floor and I beg God to them. This reality, this heaven-sent knowledge induces humility in us. This confession breeds humility in us. We note here too that though Jesus is focusing on the confession, he commends Peter as well, right? He commends Peter as well. He says, Peter is blessed in 17. And read with me in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so we mark out here in this passage in Matthew that Jesus is acknowledging Peter that he's commending Peter, that he's telling Peter, great job, you're exactly right. But we note here, when we mark this out, that Jesus never commends Peter apart from the confession that he's making. So throughout church history, this collection of verses, along with a few others, have been a major dividing line in how people conceive of the church, how the church is built, how authority exists within the context of the church, how authority is passed down, These verses are the hinge point on which the debate rests. And at issue, most of the debate is the picture that Jesus gives, telling Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the question becomes, what is the rock that Jesus intends to build his church on? For many, because of linguistic similarities, Peter is the rock. His name matches one for one, Petros, rock, Jesus is saying, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And another perspective is that Peter, along with his confession, 
is the rock. The interpretation we take here and kind of the the meaning that we pull from the passage here is that Jesus is building his church on the rock of both Peter and his confession. And so how we would phrase that is Peter, or is Jesus is ascribing to Peter here significance, but not supremacy. Significance, but not supremacy. We do that for many reasons, some of which we'll dispel here in this sermon. Some, but we draw that meaning and draw that inference from Scripture primarily because we watch how the story unfolds. Jesus is giving instructions to the disciples collectively, but then Scripture and how the church is moving forward, how the church is being built up as a context for this great confession. And within the, life, or within the narrative of Scripture, we see throughout the rest of the gospel accounts that Peter is going to be there. And we ought not ignore that. Peter is playing a prominent role in the gospel accounts. And furthermore, he's going to appear time and time again throughout the book of Acts. Peter is going to be a significant figure. But over the whole of scripture, as we see churches being started and planted, upstart churches popping up throughout the book of Acts, churches being written to by Paul, we see no significant way in which matters of the church, matters of authority in the church, are sort of filtered through Peter's life in any meaningful way. Peter doesn't exist in those contexts. The church isn't deciding, based on Peter in any way, what's supposed to happen. And so we take this collection of evidence along with other pieces and we draw interpretation from this verse that Jesus is building the church, yes, building it on Peter, but Peter as a confessor on the basis of his confession. And so we say today that the church is built on this confession, that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, and it's comprised of and made up of confessors, people who make that true confession. As we look at the, the verses here, Jesus is providing a context for the, church, for the confession. And that context is the local church. In verse 18, as he's commending Peter, he commends Peter on the basis of his confession. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We take great comfort and great confidence from knowing that Jesus here is the one who's building his church. And so discipling as we can do and as much evangelism and as much service and love toward one another, as much building up of one another as we can do in a context like this, we ultimately fall back and rest, knowing that it's not the work of human hands that builds the church in our day. That Jesus is ever about the business of building his church. So when we say at at the jump that we can live confidently and joyfully in light of this confession, this is where our confidence is derived. The fact that Jesus is ever at work. John Piper likes to say that God may be at work in 10,000 ways in our lives, and we may ever only be aware of three of them. And that's the reality. Jesus is ever at work, despite reports of the church's demise. Jesus is at work in building it. We're confident because of this. We're further confident because Jesus says not only is he building this church, but that nothing nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. The way he phrases this in the verse is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The plans of the enemy, the enemy's attacks, ultimately will not win. And what kind of weapon is a gate anyway, right? What kind of attack is launched by means of a gate? What can a gate actually do? Well, in one sense, it can constrain. In the same sense, it can hold back. 
But as far as any offensive effort, we don't find any reasonable way that a gate means anything. And so the picture here is not the church on the defensive, receiving attacks from the enemy over and over again, but the church on the offensive. That the gates cannot constrain what God is doing through his church. Your favorite Hollywood battle scene, pick one, think of it in your head right now, does not consist of that long camber pan down the, the line of armed warriors in battle and then landing on the main character and zooming in and he's standing there holding a piece of fence, right? Gandalf isn't standing on the hillside, right? In that monumental scene, holding a door. William Wallace isn't on the battle fence holding a gate. The church is on the offensive. It's prevailing. The advance of the gospel is prevailing. This is why we keep our ear to what God is doing, not only in our context here at Hope, but around the world. In our neighborhood, in our region, throughout the country, throughout the world, God is up to something. The gospel is going forth. Jesus is building his church. A final question we might ask is how is Jesus doing this? How is Jesus building his church? He's ever at work. What does that look like in our day? Jesus gives us a picture of this in somewhat of a confusing verse in verse, 18, or verse 19. He says, I'll build the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says in 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so what's Jesus mean here? What is he even talking about? Not much in the direct context gives us a clue. From this particular passage, all we have here is that Jesus is giving a responsibility, passing along a responsibility in the form of keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then the keys act in such a way that they bind or tie things up and they loose, they set things free. And this has something in the context to do with how Jesus builds his church. So what do we think that is? Thankfully for us, Jesus provides a clue a couple of chapters later. And I want you to turn there with me this morning in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Since it'll be a little while before we preach on this particular passage, it helps in this context to summarize it for the purposes of understanding what's being said in Matthew 16. Kind of give a summary and overview, overview, but what's occurring in Matthew 18 is Jesus is setting some of the parameters. So this passage in 16 that we're dealing with today is sort of the first mention Jesus makes of the church. And so we see the shape of the church coming forth in subsequent passages. And in Matthew 18, Jesus gives a detail. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. And in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, what Jesus is doing is he's spelling out a process that occurs within the church. Jesus is spelling out a process that occurs within the church. And the process is whenever a brother or sister who is within the church, a confessor, is in sin, Jesus spells out the process for how to restore that brother or sister from their sin and back into the fellowship to restore and reaffirm their confession as a believer in Christ. This passage is the process for how that restoration process occurs. To summarize the first few steps, Jesus says that when a brother or sister who is a part of the church is in sin, then the one sinned against should have a conversation. There may be multiple conversations, and we contextualize this for different situations, but there should be conversations between the involved parties. 
Jesus actually says in the passage here that if that communication succeeds, then you have gained the brother or sister who is in sin. They are restored to fellowship. Their confession is reaffirmed. He says, if that communication between the person sinning and the person sinned against fails, you go to step two. Step two means you bring along witnesses. I'm going to bring two or three parties into this situation for them to bear witness to what's occurring, to the sin that's been committed, to the one who's been grieved and offended by it. We're going to bear witness to the situation. And the same ends apply. If that communication works, we restore brother or sister to the, communi- to the community of faith. Their confession is reaffirmed. The third step is what I want to point out as a way of making sense of what's said in Matthew 16. The third step is if the going with witnesses to the brother or sister in sin doesn't work, then you take the matter before the church. And we see this second instance and second mention of the church in Matthew's gospel here. Jesus says in verse 17, if you'll read with me, if he refuses to listen to them, meaning the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And so what we have here, and I know I'm kind of spelling this out or drawing this out, but what we have here is this long, sometimes arduous process of restoring a brother or sister back into the fellowship, back into the church. And it goes, goes through multiple iterations, multiple settings for how this plays out, contextualized and, and nuanced in different ways along the way. But this is the basic process for how this occurs. And what rises to the surface here, when Jesus says that the matter is brought before the church and then is not decided there that you should treat this person as a tax collector or a Gentile, he's saying you should treat them as someone who is outside of the church. And so what we want to draw from this passage is these two categories those within the church who have made this confession side of it. There are two kinds of people when it comes to the church. Those who have made the confession and that confession is affirmed and those who are outside the fold. Why does that matter for what happens in Matthew 16? We read the next verse together. Matthew 18, verse 18. In the context of some being in the fold and some being outside, Jesus says this in 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so what Jesus here is doing is he's linking the two passages together to this idea that the church now has a responsibility of affirming the confession in those who comprise it. The church now has a responsibility, the keys given to the church to affirm the So what does that look like for us? This big kind of heady idea, like for the church to adjudicate salvation? Is everything tied up into the church and in such an old whether someone is absolutely saved or not? We don't look at it, we don't look at it that way. Instead, we take from this passage an application that says such that the church, as best as it possibly can, made up of a confessing but sinful people now has the responsibility to look at brothers and sisters who make up the church and affirm whether or not their confession is legitimate. I affirm that the confession is legitimate. How does the church do that? What's the content of their gospel confession? Do they affirm that the gospel is true, that Jesus is who he says he is? Is there fruit being born in a person's life? Are they demonstrating their belief in the gospel and love toward one another? It's their involvement such that they are involved in serving others in light of what Jesus has done for them. 
multiple layers of questioning in an effort to assess whether or not someone's profession is true. More practically, how we play that out here at Hope and how churches have done throughout the centuries is through a concept called meaningful church membership. We have this category for church membership, not expressly from scripture, but in applying the truth of scripture to what we think is best practically as a means of identifying among a massive group of people, who are those who are making a common confession? Who are those who are linking arms together saying, I believe the very same thing you do about Jesus Christ and therefore you and I can be on mission together? moving forward into our world and acting among one another with love toward one another, but moving into our world as well with proclamation of the gospel. We're believing the same things. We're doing the same things. We're linking arms in this church membership context. This is the value we see in church membership. But the overriding idea here, away from all the legalistic terms of binding, loosing, and these sorts of things, the overall idea that rises to the top is this concept that church looks a lot like a family. The church looks a lot like a family. Those who agree with the same general principles, who are on the same mission, accomplishing the same ends, that this is how we act, this is how we move, how we live, how we breathe as a family. And the overarching idea we get here is not that the church has the end-all, be-all, say-so about someone's salvation, but the church has this great responsibility of affirming someone's confession such that they are able to live confidently and joyfully as a believer in fellowship with others. The church doesn't have the end-all, be-all, say-so, but does have this responsibility of adjudicating as best as it can that someone's confession is true. So what does that look like on the ground? What does it look like for a people who have the same confession and believe the same things to do life in this context together? Well, at the center of the life of the church is this confession, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Jesus truly is the Son of God. We make that confession here in this local church context at Hope through our worship each Sunday. It informs our preaching and our teaching. It informs the songs that we sing. It undergirds the way we interact with one another. We celebrate that confession through baptism. And every month when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that confession. We live in light of the confession as we rehearse it in various ways in community with one another in groups throughout the city. And we encourage one another in that confession in our daily relating with one another and sharing meals together and doing all the sort of silly things that we do. But in a a more ultimate sense, in a more serious sense, every moment, every precious moment in the context of the local church, in the context of this local church, is overladen with this reality that there is a common confession among us that we're proclaiming to one another in our living, our being, and our doing. This is the context in which is the, the confession is made, it's nurtured, it's strengthened. And it's also the context, Jesus says, in which one's confession is affirmed. In making and affirming this confession, believing people in this context link arms and commit to one another. When we're tempted to doubt the confession, we'll do our best for one another to encourage one another by it. Where we're tempted to live contrary to the confession, we'll do our loving best to come alongside and help set one another's gaze back on the confession. When we're tempted to forget it, we'll help one another bring it to bear in our lives as a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Relating to one another in this context over and over and over again, it's great object. Jesus Christ, the Messiah the son of the living God.
as a means of response. That's a lot of information relayed. But I want to boil it down for us to these two questions today. As a means of response, consideration along these two lines. First, what is the content of your confession? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Where do you find yourself along the spectrum of accepting, rejecting, asking good questions, or indifference? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is the content of your confession that of Peter's? Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's come to save us from our sins, that he actually is the Son of God. His death counts for the forgiveness of our sins, that the resurrection happened, and that he's coming again. Is this the content of your confession? Beginning to believe that, you can receive that today. And if you're on the spectrum asking good questions, we want to remind you that we welcome those questions here. We ought to be and are the most curious people about what you think about Jesus Christ. Certainly we'll tell you what we think about him, but would love to know where you're at, where you fall along the line. What is your confession? What do you say about who Jesus Christ is? The second thing we'd, uh, I'd love for you to consider as a means of response is what is your relationship to a local church? Whether it be this one or elsewhere, perhaps you're in town visiting today, didn't really know what you were getting into when you walked in. What's your relationship to a local church? What's been your experience? Perhaps it's been painful along some lines. We grant that and realize that. The person to your left or right, perhaps has experienced some of the same. We want to hear you out on that and have that dialogue too. In the same way that we would welcome a question about who Jesus is, we would welcome the question about what the church actually does, how the church functions. What about this church is different? How can I know? What's your relationship to the local church? To your left, to your right, in a room this size, you'll find people all along the spectrum. And among those, some more committed, linking their arms around this common confession that Jesus truly is the Son of God, who committed on kind of this deeper level. It's a practical means of response this Saturday, and this isn't a commercial for our membership class, but there is a a, a better way to kind of interpret some of the things that I'm saying today. This Saturday, a group will join downstairs here at Hope. It's part of our Membership Matters class. And in that class, we sort of dispel some of the ways that we function as a church, why we do what we do here at Hope. Not contending that we do it perfectly, but just putting forth some of the ways in which we seek to love one another well and be effective gospel witnesses in our city. Membership Matters class will be this Saturday downstairs here at Hope. You can sign up for it via your Connect card or on the website, and we would love to have you there. Not as any form of, of some sort of more formal or further commitment, but just as a means of coming and learning, coming and hearing us out and asking good questions. What's your relationship to a local church? We're convinced of this here at Hope, that this confession is the most important thing about us, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, he truly is the Son of God, and that the local church is the context in which this confession lives and moves and has its being. Let's pray together.